Christianity is a strange religion. So say some people. It's about a king who came to die and die the death of criminals. And in Christianity, there is non-retaliation. There is non-violence. There is non-rebellion. There is submission and meekness. I mean, if one is looking to take over the world, friend, if you are here today looking to take over the world, you don't go to Christianity to validate your motives and actions. Adolf Hitler, reflecting on the inherited Christianity of the German people, said, It's been our misfortune to have the wrong religion. Why didn't we have the religion of the Japanese, who regards sacrifice for the fatherland as the highest good? The Mohammedan, or the Muslim. The Mohammedan religion, too, would have been much more compatible to us than Christianity. Why did it have to be Christianity with its meekness and flabbiness? Hitler was right in a certain respect. If Christians are those who follow their Christ, it stands to reason then that the church would be about Christ's meekness, Christ's love, his grace, his submission to unjust authorities, his desire for individual non-retaliation, non-violence, and non-rebellion. But he was wrong. Adolf Hitler is wrong in so many different ways but wrong to associate Christian meekness with this idea of flabbiness or weakness. Christian meekness doesn't come out of a position of weakness. It flows from the very strength of Jesus Christ himself. This is the definition of meekness. Christ-like strength under the control of Christ-like love. Christ-like strength under the control of Christ-like love. And it is to this powerful love, powerful strength, that Christians are called. And we see that this morning in our passage found in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. I invite you to turn there with me now. If you're using one of those black Bibles in front of you, it can be found on page 1015, 1015. As you uh, turn there, if you're joining with us for the first time, let me catch you up to speed here. We are in the middle of a series walking through the book of 1 Peter which was written by the Apostle Peter to the persecuted church, so suffering Christians who were in the Roman Empire, particularly in the area that is now known as Turkey. And in this letter, that's what this is, it is a letter to real people, Peter here anchors their hope not in changing their circumstances, keep in mind, right, they're being persecuted, but he anchors their hope not in a changing circumstance, but in Jesus Christ and everything that comes with him. So just think of everything that comes with Jesus. If you are in Christ, you have salvation from sin. You have a future eternal inheritance in him. You even have a present security as Christ guards us. God guards us for the salvation, for the eternal inheritance that's going to come to us. So God preserves us, giving us that security. And after nursing the the Christian's faith, that's what he's doing there in chapter 1, he then turns to address their conduct. So first he nurses the faith in Christ. Then he turns to conduct in Christ. Look at 2 verse 12, chapter 2 verse 12. This is, uh, keep in mind, this is regarding Christian conduct here. He's addressing the Christian's mission in the face of suffering. And he says there, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see what is to drive their godliness in the midst of suffering? It is so that those who cause us suffering might be saved. Why is it that we are to keep our conduct pure and honorable and Christ-like in front of the eyes of those who cause us suffering? It is so that they might be saved. In chapter 3, verse 1, Paul uses this language of being won over. It's winning over those who watch us, winning them over through godliness, through holiness, through righteousness. Here we see the power of godliness again. God utilizes what he himself creates in us. He utilizes what he himself creates in us. So we are set apart for holiness, right? That's what, that's what uh, Peter talked about earlier in chapter 1. And by his spirit, we are born again into holiness, into a sphere of holiness. And in that spirit of holiness, we are to walk in holiness. So we bear the fruits of the Spirit, and it is the Holy Spirit. So think about every sphere that you are in, friends. Think about every single sphere that you're in where people watch you. 
So you got, you know, you're, you're, you're the sphere of family and friends. You got uh, family and you got, uh, and then you got, uh, just think about your day, right? You wake up and you're in front of your family. That's your sphere. People are watching you. You also have uh, work in school. So there you go out to work in school and people, again, are watching you interact with other people, interact with your professors, etc. And then you got uh, all the different places that you go do business at. So some of you guys maybe will be going to lunch, right? That's, that's another sphere where people are watching you Christians interact with one another and inter- interact with them. And in every sphere, you Christian are to say, look at 2.9, look at chapter 2, verse 9. It says there, proclaim God's excellencies in every sphere that you're in by announcing his excellencies, right? The actual proclamation of gospel truth. But you also are to live in his excellencies. You also are to live in his excellencies. What this means is his goodness. You're supposed to live in his grace, in his faithfulness, in his holiness. And that's what Peter here holds out to these christians so in chapter 2 verse 13 let's just look at the structure here from chapter 2 verse 13 all the way to chapter 3 verse 7 he's speaking about all the different spheres in which you christians are to live of course he's writing to the first century christians look there at chapter 2 verses 13 to 17 he speaks of christians underneath the government that's a sphere under the government's rule in our passage today he speaks of the christian servants under their masters And then in the passage after ours, he addresses Christian wives in relation to their husbands and then husbands uh, in relation to their wives. So these are the spheres or the battlefronts that the mission is to be waged. So once again, the mission is Christ-like love, Christ-like holiness being lived out in all of these different spheres or battlefronts. So as ambassadors of the great king dispatched to represent our king, Christians are to proclaim the excellencies and we are to live in his excellency. So to summarize, once again, the mission is keep your conduct honorable so that others would come to salvation. And today we look at the battlefront, the battlefront of Christians underneath their masters. Um, but before we get to the actual passage, we need to address uh, slavery. OK, so he's talking about servants or slaves. Uh, without doubt, this was an ugly battlefront in the Roman Empire. An ugly battlefront in the Roman Empire. Slavery was so widespread that some scholars estimate that one out of every two people were slaves. 50% of the population in the Roman Empire were slaves. And inherent to the fabrics of society was this type of slavery uh, that oftentimes, many times, was just absolutely unjust. In terms of slavery, once again, the Roman Empire, it was, it was not quite uh, the same of what it was here in America as well as in England. Uh, slavery in the Roman Empire included those who sold themselves into slavery. So, right, if you're starving, you got no money to survive or your family needs help, you're going to sell yourself into uh, this slavery or indentured servitude to another family um, because you needed protection or something like that. So, so historically, you know, we see we have records of slaves going on to, to, to obtain high positions in society. So uh, we have uh, there are records of slaves picking up trades and even becoming doctors, etc. But of course, even though there were some uh, places of refuge in that institution of slavery, the institution of slavery was absolutely brutal at the same time. Slaves had no rights in the Roman Empire, and they were at the, the mercy of their masters. And so, you know, there are accounts, too, of just absolute brutality. But before we go any farther, let me be clear. Slavery as an institution is a creation of sinful man, right? So if you go back all the way to when God made man in his image uh, to be in a relationship with him, in a perfect relationship, there was no slavery. There was an institution. The institution was marriage. But slavery in this institution did not come in until after the fall. And so in the New Testament, in terms of how they're interacting with slavery, they're not condoning it by uh, talking about it. When they talk about it in the New Testament, they're actually regulating slavery. So if you look at, at the book of Philemon, for example, you have uh, a runaway slave who gets converted to Christianity. He believes in Jesus Christ. He meets Paul, and then Paul sends his slave back to Philemon. And so he tells Philemon, accept him now as a brother, not as a slave. Now, that, now, people wonder what exactly he means there. But at the very least, it is see each other as equals, as men made in the image of God. And regardless of social status, they are equals there. 
Um, so while Peter and Paul, while they address slavery, they're not condoning it, but they regulate slavery. Uh, other, pla- other places in Scripture, it talks about how masters are to do good to their servants. They're supposed to look out for them. And equally so, so servants are to look out for their masters. So they're regulating slavery. It's also important to note, too, that they're not, they're not calling for an overthrow of the institution. So the disciples are not social revolutionaries. There's no rallying the troops. There's no preparing the Christians for violent confrontation. Instead, what do they talk about? You know, if you read the, the New Testament, you see them talking about the Christian's relationship to God the Father. You see them talking about sin. You see them talking about, hey, be a good testimony whether you are slaves or not slaves. And if you want to read a passage, um, you know, just emphasizing the fact that there is no Christian revolution, uh, earthly revolution, you can look at 1 Corinthians 7, verses 17 to 24, and you can go ahead and read that later on. Uh, There in that passage, Paul just says, look, if you become a Christian and you are a slave, he says, what is that to you? He said, let it go. He says, if you if you become a Christian while as a slave, then you are. If you are a free man while you while you become a Christian, great, then you are. But he does say, look, if there is an opportunity to go for your freedom, then go for it. But he's not really saying, look, uh, overthrow the whole entire institution. And a reason why there are no calls for social revolution or violent confrontation is because Christians are fundamentally citizens of a different kingdom. The reason why there are no calls for social revolution or violent confrontation is because Christians are fundamentally citizens of a different kingdom where Christ is king, where his reign of grace rules. That's why there's no talk of overthrow, because Christians already live in the realities of the kingdom of God. This is why Christ and his Christians are so strange to the world at times. This is why the Christian servant, as we read in 1 Peter, was to be strange to their world, strange to their masters. And this brings us to our first official point. Point number one, the Christian servant's responsibility, the Christian servant's responsibility. Look there in 18. You see the responsibility that Peter lays on the Christian servant. He says there, be subject to your masters. This theme is just a continuation on from verse 13. If you go ahead and look at chapter two, verse 13, you see there he spoke of Christians underneath the rule of the government, be subject to the government. That's the battlefront, right? Christians in front of the government. Here he moves on to the next battlefront which is the battlefront of the household. So keep in mind here, these Christians were suffering under these masters. Verse 19, right? It says that they're suffering unjustly. Verse 20 says that possibly they're being beaten for doing good. This is why Peter has to bring up the fact that, look, be subject to your unjust masters, not only to the just ones, but also to the unjust because they were living under them. Be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and the gentle, but also the unjust. When you guys hear that word unjust, think moral bankruptcy. Think corrupt. Think crooked. Think perverse here. I mean, for us today, you know, some of us might feel the temptation to distance ourselves from what we see in the pages of Scripture. Uh, Frankly, that would be a bit naive to think that this kind of servitude does not exist in the world. That would be very naive. I mean, here in Orange County, L.A. County, just a few years ago, there was one employer who was holding four maids, one from Kenya, three from the Philippines, against their will for months in the city of Irvine. But for us here at First Baptist Church, you know, what will help us as we go through this passage is to expand our thinking from servant-master relationship to kind of any relationship where you find yourself underneath an authority. Right. So even though we here today, many of us today, as in 2017, 2016, uh, may not find ourselves facing this kind of unjust suffering or unjust slavery, uh, you know, it does exist in the world today. And uh, but for us today, for our purposes, we want to expand the categories to anybody who is underneath an authority. If you have been underneath an unjust authority, you can just imagine how hard it was to listen to Peter's exhortation. Be subject. Submit to your masters, even to the unjust. I mean, imagine that situation where the ones in the authority are ungodly, evil, 
and wicked and seek to crush those under their authority. Friends, do you realize that this is a particular evil? A particular evil. Why is that? It's because their God-given authority, which is given to them in order that they might use it to cultivate man for the glory of God, instead is wielded in ungodliness for the destruction of man and for the glorification of himself. It is a particular evil to abuse authority, whether it is parental authority, employee or employer authority or kingly authority. It's particularly wicked. It is hijacking God's plan and and abusing God's created people to steal the glory that God alone deserves. And if unjust authority has ever been wielded against you, you know how oppressive this can be and suppressive this can be. Living under unjust authorities comes unjust laws and unjust expectations placed on your back to break you. With corrupt authority comes harsh and belittling speech oftentimes intended to cut you down, not build you up. With corrupt authority comes physical beatings, as we see here, meant to shut you up and leave you limping and suffering while the one in authority struts off in arrogance. What would you do as a slave in that master's house? Would you cower in fear? So desperately wanting to please your boss. Think of wicked bosses too. Oscar, don't think of me. Wherever you are. Would you cower in fear? Being fully aware that he or she has every power to wield against you, to take everything you know and possess, to even snuff out your very life, snuff out your earthly existence. Would you cower in fear to keep all that you have and all that you think you are? You just imagine that relationship. If you think that your authority is really going to kill you, you could fear because you want to protect everything you have. They have the authority, so therefore we need to give in to everything uh, that they tell us to do. Or probably some of you guys might want to rise up in rage. You fight, right? You fight to keep all that is meaningful to you, your, even your earthly existence, especially your earthly existence, right? They have all the power to take everything from you, everything that you count valuable in this life, especially your life, and so therefore you revolt. You rebel, you crush, just as they are crushing. You realize, friends, if you know your hearts well enough, this is your instinct in the midst of unjust authority, unjust suffering. Uh, Which is why Peter goes on in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, so put it away, put away malice, right? They're committing malice against you. They're slandering you. He says there, put it all away, put away malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Right? I mean, no matter how right these responses are in the face of injustice, these responses are the responses of the kingdom of man. These responses to cower in fear, so fear man, or to destroy and crush, those are all responses of the kingdom of man. They're all, they're, they're all messed up responses. Because of sin, we react in these ways. We react in sinful ways. And in fact, these responses, in, friends, are more in line with those who are morally corrupt than you know. Which means you, friends, share a lot with those who are absolutely morally corrupt. That is, those who persecute you. They are more in line with the values of unjust masters. You want some examples? So think of Israel, for example, cowering in fear. God calls out Israel out of Egypt and says, Look, I want you to live for my glory, and I want you to trust me as your king and live according to my ways. And look, if you go into the land, he says, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to clear out the land so that you can take possession of it. Instead, what do the people do? Even though they have God as their king, the sovereign, powerful God, yet in the face of the giants of the land, yet in the face of the strength of their economies, yet in the face of all of the land that they possess, they fear. And so they strike up deals with the nations. And eventually they abandon their covenant with God and they run and worship those idols, their idols. That's cowering in fear. That's, that's, that's saying, okay, look, 
You have the power to destroy. God certainly doesn't. So I need to partner with you, actually. And so you kind of give up living for the kingdom of God and live according to the kingdom of man. Another example here. Uh, think, think about those who rise up to violence. So you guys who are tempted to respond in kind, whether with your words or even in your hearts as you want to destroy the unjust boss. Think of Pharaoh in Exodus. What was his response when he feared losing his earthly kingdom? In hatred and in violence, it says he rose up and he killed. He feared losing his kingdom and he responded with evil and killed baby boys to wipe out a slow genocide of the uh, Hebrew people. So if you respond in fear that leads to cowering or you respond in fear that leads to violence and hostility, we need to realize that those responses in our hearts reveal that we have a whole lot more in common with those who might oppress us than we think. It also reveals that we have our hopes and our longings set on this earthly kingdom, don't we? Rather than on the kingdom of God. And so in our fear, we grasp after all the things in the world that we count valuable. And it, friends, it reveals where our hopes are stored up in. Our hopes are stored up here in this earth, in this world. But here in our passage here, Christians, Peter says, are people claimed for the kingdom of God. People who are supposed to live according to the rule of Christ, according to the law of Christ, who have their hopes, not here on this earth, but people who are grasping after, holding on to the hope that they have in Jesus Christ. We are, Christians are citizens, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, right? Who have a different king. So look at 319, chapter 3, verse 19. This is why he talks about Jesus and his authority. Uh, this Jesus is the one who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, which is a place of authority. And all the rulers and even the spiritual powers are underneath his authority, even right now. And so Peter helps us look to the heavenly king and the heavenly kingdom right there. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, which is where our hope and inheritance lie. And that's in chapter 1, verse 4. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven who have been born again through a heavenly message. Even the message that we hear and trust in is of heaven the spirit sent of heaven chapter 1 verse 12 and the way in which we get into this kingdom and have this hope at all is because jesus christ died on the cross for sins of course all of this stuff that he's talking about our kingdom hope comes through the cross where jesus christ shed his blood for all those who would ever repent of their sins and believe so where we created the problem christ god himself gives us christ and gives us the solution. And so where we were once were separated from him, separated from our king and living according to the earthly kingdom, where our hopes were stored up, where we were grasping after authority, uh, where we had set all of our deliverance and salvation in, God comes along and he redirects our hearts by his spirit. And so we have this wonderful salvation from our sin, salvation from the wrath of God. And we have this heavenly inheritance. So that now that we have tasted, right, this is how we taste that the Lord is good. We are to live according to his ways, holiness and righteousness. So when Peter says, friends, be subject to unjust masters, it's never just be subject, something you do. It is live in the realities of the kingdom of Christ. That's what he's reminding us to here, that that he's reminding us that there are, in fact, better ways than the ones that we previously lived in. There are better motives than vengeance. There are better motives than hatred. There are better avenues than murder. And the avenues are pleasing Jesus Christ, even walking in the same footsteps. So so what does it look like to actually be subject? Um, And what are the motivations that drive being subject? We have them here in terms of the motivations. According to the passage, Christians are to endure sorrows while seeking to please God. Christians are to endure sorrows while seeking to please God. This is why in the midst of unjust suffering, Christians are to be and can be, as it says there in verse 19, look there, mindful of God, mindful of God. So the focus all of a sudden, if you're suffering, right, the focus is the temptation is to be fixed on uh, making things right in front of your boss or the one who is unjustly over you. Maybe we fear man, maybe we want to kill him rule over him but here he redirects the focus not from the one that we could fear here on earth but to the one that we ought to fear and please that is god mindful of god means being conscious of all of the realities of the lord and his kingdom 
his character, his laws, his salvation, all of his ways. So while we live here in the kingdom of man, we are always mindful and conscious of God and his kingdom. That's how we can be subject to unjust masters. It is only when we fear God more than we fear man. If you look at verse 18, right, who does uh, Peter say fear is reserved for? We are to be subject with all respect. It literally reads, uh, be subject to your masters with all fear, with all fear. But here, if there is going to be any fear directed towards your unjust masters or bosses, it's ultimately supposed to go to God. So if you look there in... um, Verse 17, honor everyone of chapter 2, 217, honor everyone. That's what he's calling us to do. Love the brotherhood, fear God, and then honor the emperor. It's fear reserved for God. And then in 19, he tells us to be subject to your masters with all respect. It literally means fear. So when he's saying fear God and then be subject to your masters with all fear, he's not telling us to ultimately fear man He's telling us once again to fear God, be subject because we are mindful of God. We fear God. We are mindful that we are precious in God's sight. You guys remember that? That God finds his people and their faith precious. And so, of course, God is going to take care of us. This is living in the reality that he is Lord and that he, in fact, cares. I mean, what else does living in the realities of God's kingdom look like? It looks like hoping in the return of Jesus Christ hoping in the return of Jesus Christ. According to 19 and 20, look there, the presupposition is that Christ's end times reward would move them to Christ-like conduct. The ultimate reward that's going to come is supposed to motivate Christ-like conduct. Peter says, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. What in the, what in the world does that mean? To endure sorrows while suffering unjustly is a gracious thing? It is a credit to you? When Peter describes unjust suffering as a gracious thing, uh, it, it literally means it is a grace. It is, he thinks about it as a credit. Uh, he's talking about rewards. He's talking about God bestowing his favor and rewards upon his people at christ's return this is part of the inheritance that we have he explains what god takes note of for example right what he rewards so for example if you guys legitimately are wicked and you commit evil deeds and so you are disciplined for it or you suffer the consequences for it you are beaten for it and you endure that he says well why would god note that what's what's so special about that if anything you know that that's you're actually deserving that that uh, punishment It is a just punishment. It's not worthy of noting for the Christian. But when the Christian suffers unjustly for doing good, God actually takes note of that. Here you see the beauty of how how, uh, God the Father finds his children precious again. He looks after them. And so when you follow in his footsteps, he's noting these things down. So friends, if you are going through some sort of situation where you're experiencing unjust suffering... Never forget that God, your father, is noting these things down. Like the quiet father who notices when his children are doing good to his other children. Like when the mother notices that, the, that her daughter is wanting to do good towards her and her family. And, and she just quietly notes these things down with the intention to encourage, with the intention to reward, with the intention to love because of those things. That's what, he's, that's what Peter's doing here. If you, friends, suffer unjustly, God is noting them down and will reward you for those actions. Same type of thinking is, is found in Jesus' teaching in Luke 6, 32 to 35. You don't have to turn there, but you can write down the reference and look at it later. later. Jesus talks about loving your enemies. And Jesus says, it is of no benefit, think credit, to love those that you already find lovely. He says the non-Christian can do that. The wicked person can do that. Adolf Hitler could do that. It's not, nothing special there. But if when God's children love even their own enemies, then the father rejoices over his children because those children are learning to love like he does, just like Christ does. And the father notes that. And there even you have in that passage, you have that the idea of reward, credit, <clears throat> and also doing good. 
So this dynamic that Jesus was teaching about is going on here in 1 Peter. Peter's probably thinking of those very words of Christ. <clears throat> so that's point number one. The Christian, uh, the Christian servant's responsibility is to be subject. The Christian servant's responsibility is to be subject. Okay, point number two. The Christian servant's example. The Christian servant's example. The responsibility to be subject to masters and endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. Um, that was the responsibility. They're, in that responsibility, they're called to follow none other than Jesus Christ, their own king. To this, Peter says, you were called. Look there at verse 21. Chapter 2, verse 21. For to this, that is, enduring sorrows while suffering unjustly, you have been called because... Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So in terms of the Christian calling, you know, Christians, you know, they oftentimes rejoice about all the sorts of different types of callings that have been going on in the book of First Peter. So, right, Christians are called out of darkness into this marvelous light. We think, yay, praise God, delivered from sin, wonderful. We think uh, even, uh, you know, as, as there is God's elect, uh, we have a calling as God's elect. We think, yay, praise God, God has saved us. All by his grace, we think this is excellent. We're even called in some ways to an eternal inheritance that far outweighs anything here on earth. And we think, yay, praise God. But when it comes to this calling, the calling to unjust suffering, all of a sudden we sort of think, uh, we sort of disregard this calling. We ignore this calling. We're happier with the words of Peter when he tells Jesus, surely you will not die on the cross and suffer. We like those words. When it comes to here, the calling to unjust suffering, to doing good in the face of evil, we think surely this can't be right. But friends, you realize that to dislike this call to suffering is to dislike the path of Christ that won salvation for you? How can we neglect this calling to enduring sorrows while experiencing unjust suffering? Our responsibility and calling is a calling to follow in the path of Christ as he left us this example that we would follow in his steps. And here this example language is, is like, it literally is like, you know, if you're learning how to do cursive, they probably don't even teach cursive today. If, if they're learning how to write your letters, um, you know, they're going to have, they're going to lay out this tracing grid where each letter, you know, is, is not a solid line, but sort of dots and you've got to trace that. That's what he's talking about here. Christ has laid out what we are supposed to walk in. And so we travel in his footsteps. It is that we would follow in his steps. So a number of applications that come from this. A number of implications that come from this. Number one, because he endured unjust suffering, we too, friends, can find strength to endure unjust suffering. Because he endured unjust suffering, we can find strength to endure unjust suffering. So you remember the two examples there. You could either fear and cower or fear and destroy, fear and crush. Uh, instead of fear, right, giving into fear that rages, fear that cowers, to fight for everything that we find valuable, our possessions or our lives, instead all of a sudden we can be joyful. Is that even a possibility for you, Christian? That in the face of someone taking away everything that you find valuable here on earth, that you can actually be joyful in the midst of that suffering? This is what Jesus did, though he was displaced by others. Though he was dispossessed of everything, especially his life by others. The Bible says he joyfully endured the cross because he was possessed by God. We too walk in those footsteps. We can be displaced by others. We can be dispossessed of everything we own here on earth because we have been lovingly possessed by God. We are able to let go of all that we value, what the world values, because we hold on to everything that Christ has given us. We don't need to fight for whatever we used to find security in, because ultimate security is in Jesus Christ. The salvation that we have, the eternal inheritance that we're going to have, right? And so with Paul, we can count all things as loss for the sake of Christ, Philippians 1.7. We don't even have to fight for our very own lives because true life is found in the resurrection life found in Christ. As Philippians 1, 20, 21 says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So friends, you see that there? The evil one cannot take away 
what you have already given to Christ. The evil one cannot take away what we have already given to Christ. Treasures on earth. We have treasures in heaven because we've already abandoned our worldly way of thinking and we store up treasures in heaven. Our earthly lives, well, because our lives are hid with Christ on high, we have security. You see here, we're not called to violent confrontation in the face of evil. Instead, we are called to godly confrontation, confronting the powers of evil that seek to haunt us and crush us with all the realities of the kingdom of God. I hope the footsteps of Christ are becoming beautiful to you because in them you remind yourselves of the glories of the gospel and you tell the watching world that there are in fact glories in the gospel even in the face of unjust suffering. In becoming Christians, we submit our entire lives to Christ and we pray that he would do with them, that is, do with our lives, what pleases him most. And in there, there is so much freedom. Freedom to do true good to others. Freedom to forgive those who persecute us, to pray for those who hate us. This is what it means to live in the realities of the kingdom of God with Christ as our king. We can gladly suffer dispossession because we've already been possessed by God. The evil one can't take away what we've already given to Christ. And when we have given up all things to Christ, we can truly live for his glory, even in the face of suffering. This is what Jesus did. And he is our wonderful, marvelous example. Implication number two. Implication number two. As Christ lived for righteousness, so we can too. That is, live for righteousness, even in the face of suffering. In the example of Christ, we see an alternative way we see an alternative ethic. That is the ethic of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus taught this ethic in the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew, along with other uh, peculiar things as he's talking about the law of the kingdom of heaven. He says there, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. It's a wonderful language that sort of just beckons us to wait and to long for the day when Christ will come to restore his kingdom. The meek will inherit the earth. If you would just wait and be patient and to trust in him. Not only did he teach this ethic, but he obviously lived it. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 to 23. It says there, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This verse comes straight, straight out of the prophecy of Isaiah, which is the, the, the passage that Oscar read for us earlier. And it speaks there of God's suffering servant. It was written 700 years before Jesus came. Uh, but it speaks of the suffering servant who would die for the sins and the iniquities of his people. And even though he had to suffer unjustly, he, uh, even though he had to suffer unjustly, he nevertheless lived righteously. He committed no sin. He was, of course, the sinless one, even though he was sinned against. So think about think about the sufferings of Jesus here. Uh, Even though people were trying to set him up and capture him so that he would say the wrong thing or speak against the law and so therefore earn for himself a, uh, a death and a crucifixion or an execution. It says there that he did not betray the Old Testament. He deceit was not found on his mouth. You think about how people spoke ill of him and mocked him, but yet it says here that he did not speak ill of them. And even though he suffered at the hands of evil men, even though he was punched in the face, even though he was whipped and jabbed with a spear, it says there he did not threaten or also he did not terrorize in return. So he could have responded in kind. Instead, he chose to suffer. And his children are called now to do the exact same thing. Uh, This is part of the example right the example that we follow in that we trace after we are to follow in his footsteps now of course while we christians are not called to follow in his footsteps in every way so think about you know we can't die on the cross as a substitution for other people's sins Uh, we do follow in his footsteps as just as he died for others we too are to suffer and maybe even die for the salvation of others not that we can save them in our death but so that others would see 
that we live according to the king and his gospel and the laws of the kingdom and so be saved. Christ suffered for those who sinned against him and we too are called to suffer for those who sin against us that they might be saved. Keep in mind chapter 2 verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation that they might be won over through godliness. You see, friends here, you see how intimately tied or intricately Christ's substitutionary death on the cross, his wrath bearing death on the cross uh, is connected to the Christians uh, walking in suffering. It's not that uh, his substitutionary death is unimportant. It is important. And in fact, it lays down the very path that we are to walk in, not dying on the cross for other people's sins, but dying so that other people would look at Jesus Christ, his gospel and his kingdom and be saved. Friends, if this is going to happen, you realize here that we need to brace, embrace the gospel of the kingdom so much live according to the realities of the king and his word and his gospel so that we therefore can even give up our lives that's hard it's hard to have the position to have the heart posture of wanting to forgive those who cause you suffering if you don't know forgiveness in jesus christ but for this to happen if if we are to uh, live holy lives and love those who cause us suffering if we are going to long for the forgiveness of others, we need to learn to be the forgiven, as one has said. If we are to long for the forgiveness of others, we need to learn to be the forgiven. Once you realize that our greatest problem is not that we don't have enough stuff, that our lives aren't living long enough, then all of a sudden, once we realize that, we come to realize our true problem, that is that we need to be reconciled with God, our very creator, then we start understanding this life a whole lot differently. Then we aspire after reconciliation with God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we begin to look at all the earthly stuff in its proper place. That is that they are all fading and that they are all failing. And there's something that Pharaoh who wanted to kill the Hebrew baby, something that he had to learn. It is something that the Israelites had to learn that the way the world does their kingdom and all of their law and all that they find important will ultimately fail them. But... The Lord can be trusted in us. He is faithful and good to us. That's implication number two. Implication number three. As Christ trusted in God's righteousness to judge, so we can too. As Christ trusted in God's righteous judgment, so we can too. So instead of living, uh, instead of living to sin against those who sinned against him, what did Christ do? Verse 23. It says there, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He's thinking about, right, this entrusting. He's thinking about when Christ was delivered over to the authorities and then he was crucified. But even in the midst of that, as he handed himself over to the unjust authorities who wanted his life, he was really handing himself over to the plan of God, to the will of God, to his very own father, who would then raise his life three days after he died. Christians, there is so much instruction in this verse. We as Christians are not called to any sort of stoicism, any resignation or faith of some general idea that providence doesn't care about pain or suffering. And then so we therefore are to be stones in this life. That's not what he says here. What we are called to is an ongoing trust that God will indeed judge the wicked who inflict evil upon you. And because he will because he is trustworthy and righteous and that he is the, the judge, we don't need to judge others in the courtroom of our own minds. We don't need to pronounce sentences upon sinners of how, how bad and evil they are with our very own mouths. We don't even need to inflict punishment on our abusers with our own hands. Why is that? Why is it that in the face of unjust suffering, we can resign ourselves to some sort of resignation, but which really isn't entrusting in the faithfulness of God to judge? Why is it? It's because he is who he is. Once again, this is living in the realities of the kingdom. This is living in the realities that God is the judge of the wicked. As Romans 12 verse 9 says, leave room for vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He doesn't say you take vengeance. He says, leave it to God who is just. So instead of judging the evildoers, 
we can live before them and love them, hoping that they would come to experience salvation and not God's judgment. You see how freeing it is to walk the pathway of Jesus Christ. This is a call to live in the realities of God's righteousness, giving up hatred, giving up bitterness, giving up deceit, giving up fear, willing to give up, yes, our very own lives because of all that we have in Jesus Christ. This is, after all, a major reason for why Christ died on the cross. Look there at verse 24. It says there, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that is the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Once again here, He's he's emphasizing the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. Christ bore our sins and the wrath that we deserved in order, here's one purpose, that we might die to sin and, friends, live to righteousness. How is it that we can live to righteousness in the face of unjust suffering? Because we can trust in God's righteous judgment, just as Jesus did. If, if you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian, you might look at Jesus Christ. You know, you might find him peculiar. You look, look at other Christians and you, you see that Jesus and, you know, Christians, they're striving to live freely in Christ's kingdom, believing in his gospel and all the wonderful blessings that come with them. The only reason why any Christian is able to do that is because they're hoping in Christ and in his kingdom. Friends, you might find yourselves clawing and grasping after everything that you find valuable here, even your own life. And you find that there's that thing that just haunts you over and over and over again. You are driven to maintain what can be lost. Friends, I hope you realize that in some sense, your assessment of that thing is right. You will indeed lose it. You can indeed lose it. But the only way that you can keep what is most valuable and of eternal significance is if you turn to Jesus Christ, you let go of the things of the world. And therefore, you won't be living like the rest of the world in malice, in bitterness, in guilt and shame. But instead, you live in this wonderful, beautiful freedom. In, in doing my study here for this sermon, there was this one story where uh, this man had lost his son. Christian pastor had lost his son uh, because other people had killed him. And as he was facing this unjust suffering, they had murdered him, underscore murdered, unjust killing. Um, He was so moved to compassion for this person who killed his very own son that he ended up adopting the murderer of his child. And that person ended up becoming a Christian and came to love Jesus Christ because of the witness of this pastor and his daughters right i mean just imagine the heartache of seeing your son killed murdered at the hands of a christ hater the children imagine being sisters of the brother and all the heartache that comes with watching some man murder your very own brother and then collectively they move trusting in christ they move then to adopt their son or their brother's killer and see him become a christian all for the glory of God. That's what happens when you trust in Jesus Christ. You begin to love so that those who do wicked things against you come to love Jesus Christ. That's, what, that's the goal here, right? If you think about the mission, keep your conduct good and honorable so that those who see you might glorify God on the day of visitation. It's for the salvation of sinners. Friends, this passage here calls us to live for Christ. That's what will give you strength to live, freedom to live, and love even in the face of unjust suffering. Friends, repent of your sins and believe. To conclude, church, I pray that you see that the footsteps of Christ don't need to be threatening, but can actually be footsteps of serenity when we live by faith in the excellencies of our Savior. We know Christ more in these footsteps, don't we? According to this passage, to know Christ involves mentally accepting His atoning sacrifice for sins, but it also involves walking in those same footsteps to know this Christ who suffered unjustly for you so that you would come to know and love the Father, His footsteps of faithfulness, 
his footsteps of mercy and grace towards sinners who only deserved his judgment in hell. His footsteps of trusting in God the Father as rescuer, as deliverer. And then as verse 25 says there, look, it says that we have returned to our trustworthy shepherd and a competent overseer of our lives. We come to know this Jesus so much more by walking in his same footsteps. Another thing, as we trust in Christ, to walk, as we trust in Christ and walk after him, the world comes to see Christ. The world comes to see more of Christ, right? Our holy character, once again, is a projection of Christ's holiness and his character. And keeping our conduct honorable in front of everyone, they are pointed to the honorable one, aren't they? That is our Lord and shepherd, our savior and overseer. And those who watch us by God's grace, they might even come to believe on Christ for the very first time. That's what's laid out in front of us. It's not just a call to endure. It's not just a call to wait. It is a call to live in the realities of the kingdom of God, trusting in Christ and projecting his beautiful character to the watching world. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your great love given to us in the cross. As you died, Lord Jesus Christ, on the cross for our sins, you bore our sins on your body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to holiness. And Lord, as we look at your footsteps, as you lived your whole entire life in the shadow of the cross, heading towards the cross, We are amazed at your faithfulness, your grace, your mercy, your steadfast love. And you had on your heart every Christian who would repent of their sins and believe. You had on your heart every single one of us. And even though we deserve nothing but judgment, yet, Lord, you loved us till the death. Lord, teach us to love like that. That as we go about our business here in this world and live our lives in front of any authority, parents, government, employers, schoolmates, Lord, that we would be so compelled by the love of God that we would be so willing and eager to walk in the footsteps of Christ so that we would show your glories in the gospel, so that our lives would be a representation though blurred as it might be because of our sin it might be a representation of your great love for sinners teach us to love and to live in a different way according to your kingdom through the power of the holy spirit we pray these things in the name of jesus amen